No one likes to be told that they're wrong, right? And even when we know that we are wrong, we struggle to admit it and certainly don't want anyone else to point it out to us. And this is especially true of kings, even good kings like King David. David, the man after God's own heart, committed many wrongs. He was wrong when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife. He was wrong when he had Uzziah, her husband, murdered to cover it up. And my guess is, though many people knew what happened, no one wanted to tell David that he was in the wrong. But someone eventually did. Uh, we're told in 2 Samuel that Nathan, the prophet of God, comes and with a very simple story, he confronts David with his wrongdoing. And in response, the king repents. And though uh, Psalm, or 2 Samuel 12 doesn't give us much on what David's repentance looks like, Psalm 51 does. It's a song that David wrote in response to Nathan's confrontation, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. For the next three weeks, uh, we are going to look at what I think is a scary word. We're going to look at repentance. And repentance is scary because it has to mean more than, uh, I was wrong, or man, I'm sorry. It has to mean more than that because it is the bedrock of the Christian life. It's an ongoing practice. It's a lifestyle, if you will. And so for the next three weeks, I want us to explore what this lifestyle of repentance looks like. And to do that, we really need to make sure we understand what repentance even is. And so tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 51, and we're going to see three things from our text. I want us to see the practice of repentance, the problem of repentance, and the provision for repentance. So the practice of repentance. Let me give you a baseline definition, and then we'll build on it from there. So repentance is a change of thought or direction, and we could kind of illustrate it like this. So this is you, okay? You're going one direction, right? And if you repent, you do a complete 180, and you're now going a completely different direction. You are thinking a completely different way. That's repentance in a nutshell. But a few different things need to happen for you to make this 180 degree turn. And that's what we see in our text this evening. So look at verses 3 through 5 with me. David declares in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so David is telling us here is for, for repentance to actually take place, we need to be confronted with, we need to know our transgressions. We need to understand the nature of our wrongdoing if we're going to confess it. And there are two things specifically that David comes to grips with, and we need to as well. First, we need to understand the depth of our wrongdoing. Notice how in verse 5, David says that he was conceived in sin. Now, this does not mean that his mother had him out of wedlock. David's trying to, to express in poetic terms just how deep his sin really is. How many of you uh, do your own laundry? Anyone? 
A couple of you. Okay, a lot of you. Awesome. So, uh, I don't know how you were taught to do laundry. Here's how I was taught. You're always supposed to sort your different colors. You know, your darks go in this pile, and your whites over here. I'm old. Forgive me. If it, so, here's why you would do that. Because if you throw a dark color in with the whites, it will color the whole load. And so, you throw a red sock in with a load of whites, eventually, it will make the whole load of whites some shade of pink. And that's how sin works. Sin is not just a little red sock that's thrown into your squeaky white life. Once it's in there, it, it mixes and permeates into everything that you do. And so we need to understand that there our sin is not just this little blemish somewhere in the corner of our life, but it has affected every part of our, our being. In other words, it goes really deep to the core of who we are. And we also need to understand who our sin is against. Notice in verse 4 that he says that his sin is against the Lord and the Lord only. And that should be surprising to us because he definitely sinned against Bathsheba and he definitely sinned against Uzziah. Which is absolutely true. What the Bible is speaking about and what David is acknowledging is that sin is ultimately and primarily an affront to God. Every time we sin, we're basically giving God the middle finger and saying, I know best, I'm going to do what I want. And so while David did sin against other people, absolutely, he realizes that first and foremost, his wrongdoing is aimed at God. And so for us to repent, repent we need to confess. We need to understand the, the depth of our sin and who it's actually, who we've actually wronged in the process. But repentance doesn't leave us wallowing in the depths of our depravity. It actually drives us to make this 180-degree turn, and we would call that um, cleansing. Um, and that's kind of abstract. Let me try to highlight some stuff in the text that will flesh it out. First, the, the cleansing, the turn happens when there is a change of affection. Um, notice how in verses 10 through 12, David is imploring that God would give him a clean heart to renew a right spirit within him. A and that makes total sense when we understand what sin is. If our sin is against God because we value something more than him, then repentance must be a reshifting of priorities and affections. And that naturally brings about a change of action. If you look at verses 13 through 15, David lists out all the things he's going to do differently now as part of his 180-degree turn. He's going to act and live differently, but that action will only stick. It'll only uh, play out in his life if it's fueled by new affections. And, and so this is, this is repentance in a nutshell. It's, it's confessing our sin and making that 180-degree turn to new affections and actions. It's what David does in our text, and it's what we're expected to do as Christians as well. But we don't. I'm prepared to 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident to, in saying that repentance is probably the single most neglected practice in the Christian life. Every once in a while, we will read our Bible. Every once in a while, we will pray. But other than that initial repentance, ask Jesus into our hearts as Savior, most of us don't give repentance a second thought. In fact, we, we push back and we run from it. And that's because we have a problem with repentance. Actually, I think we have two problems. Um, and they, they're played out as desires. So one desire we have when it comes to, that keeps us from repentance, is that we downplay our sin. Right? Uh, in recent memory, every time that I have been confronted with some wrongdoing, my first reaction has been to justify it. I was having a really bad week. Uh, you have no idea what type of stress that I am under. Or I never intended for you to take it that way. We, we justify ourselves and what has happened. And what we're really saying is, that's no big deal. It's really, it's really not as bad as you think it is. But think about it this way. Who gets to determine the severity or the costliness of an offense? You can throw in a couple of answers, right? court of law, a judge, maybe even the offended party, but you will never ever say that the offender gets to choose how offensive the crime was. Why? Because their, their view of reality is skewed. They're never going to see their offense as bad as it actually is, and we're in the same boat. We'll never actually see our sin as clearly as we need to, because it pervades our lives are thinking we can't see it for what it truly is. And so we try to downplay it. Similarly, yet very different, another thing that keeps us from repentance is we simply just hide from it. We just don't even acknowledge that there is something wrong there. And this has been our move since day one, or at least day one of the fall. When Adam and Eve first rebelled, as soon as they realized what happened, they tried to hide their wrongdoing from God. And there's a number of reasons why we try to hide that, hide our wrongdoing, right? We're, 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 we fear disapproval. We fear some type of punishment. We fear uh, that we will lose out on something because of the wrong committed. And so to preserve all of that, we hide. And both of those things have, have something in common. Both of them are based in our pride. Ultimately, pride says, I'm not really that bad. I mean, yes, I've messed up, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like Hitler or someone like that. And pride is also the thing that tries to sweep our mistakes, our wrongdoing under the rug and says, no, look over here, look and see how great I am. And there's a very technical term for what's happening to us. We have... Pride has um, plugged us up. Um, see, back in Bible times, um, a great offensive strategy in war was to plug up the water supply of a city. You would literally suffocate them into submission. And that's exactly what, what pride does in this situation. Our, our unwillingness to repent plugs up our relationship with God, and it, it chokes the life out of it. And something needs to happen in order to fix that. Um, so when I was interviewing for this job, Em and I were having lunch with some of the search committee. We were at a diner, and my go-to move is always to order a cheeseburger. Plain, and I apply the ketchup myself, because no cheeseburger is complete without ketchup. 
So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm there, I'm shaking the bottle, I try to squeeze some ketchup out, nothing. Shake it, squeeze again, little tiny bit of drops, and I think to myself, that's okay, I've been working out, I'll just give this a good old squeeze. And I squeezed it with all my might, and you can imagine what happened. Ketchup just exploded out, splattered all over my off-white sweatshirt, and everyone is just like staring at me like, what you gonna do, Caleb? Laughed it off. It was fine. Just kind of, you know, dip my fries in myself for a little bit there. Um, but here, here's what I want you to understand. For me to free the ketchup, for it to be unplugged, a greater force needed to be applied than the, the plug itself. And, and that's what needs to happen here. A greater force, a greater provision needs to be made so that we can repent. But that's very tricky because our two desires are really conflicting things. If we are confronted with the severity of our sin, what are we going to do? We're going to hide. And for us to come out of hiding, we feel like we need to downplay our sin. And so we're kind of stuck. So we need something really special to unclog everything. And that's where Jesus comes in, specifically his death on the cross. In 1 Peter 2.24, it tells us that, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And, and this tells us two things. First, it shows us the severity of our sin. That this wasn't an oopsie. This wasn't a small misdemeanor. The fact that blood must be shed to deal with it, to set, in order to set things right, it proves to us the severity of our sin. But did you notice the first few words there? He himself bore our sins, yours and mine. See, the severity of your sin is very real, but it has been shouldered by someone else. Jesus was exposed to the world. He was ridiculed and rejected for your sin. And this divine exchange screams at us that we are loved even though we have sinned. And I'm not sure who to attribute it to, so I'll just give you the statement, right? You are far worse than you possibly think, but you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. And that's what makes repentance, a lifestyle of repentance, possible? What convinces us of the grievousness of our sin? What draws our attention to the fact that sin is ultimately an affront to God? It's the cross. It's Jesus. But what quickens our heart and sets us on a new direction and transforms our actions? Is it not also Jesus? Here's what I'm trying to say. You will never grasp repentance, nor will you walk in repentance unless you see Jesus on the cross for you. Not once, don't just see him once and forget about it, but daily, that will give you the fuel to walk this lifestyle of repentance.